Welcome to the Wolf Whistle, the podcast that interviews and celebrates the former players of our great club, Wolverhampton Wanderers. Welcome to the Wolf Whistle. Welcome to the 46th edition of the Wolf Whistle podcast, the podcast which interviews and celebrates the former players of our great club. Today we're joined by a defender, Derek Mountfield, signed for Wolves in November 1991, was at the club till 1994, 91 appearances and four goals. Derek, how are you? Not bad, Jason, at all. Not bad at all. Good. Now... Me and Derek, I'll let all the listeners into a little secret. For the past couple of days, we have had so many technical difficulties and we've tried to do this on Zoom. We originally tried to do it on WhatsApp and we've had nothing but problems. But now, Derek, I'm confident we're going to get this uh, get this over the line. Fingers crossed, Jason. Fingers crossed. It's taken a bit of time, a bit of battling, but fingers crossed we'll do it today. It certainly has. And actually, Derek, I've noticed because we did just start a Zoom call and I was wearing my 1991 Wolf shirt to make you feel at home. And I've noticed that famous moustache of yours has disappeared. It's well disappeared, mate. I'm now keeping a matchbox by the side of the bed. comes out for very special occasions, which aren't very, very few and far between. The moustache will forever hold me, Jason. Um, at the time, it was a lot of people had them, but uh, I've not had it on now for over 20 years. And to be honest, I don't miss it at all. Wow, that was your trademark moustache. And actually, when we spoke yesterday, when we was having our technical <laughs> difficulties, I believe you'd just come off the golf course because you're a, you're a semi-decent golfer, aren't you, Derek? Yes, um, I've finished, ret- I've retired from school now, I've left football, I-, I went into school, uh, sports coaching with special needs education children, and uh, I retired in this year, I just finished school, so during lockdown I couldn't play golf, but since lockdown I've, I've been as- on the golf course as much as I possibly can, played far too much golf, and I got a savage cut last week, winning a couple of competitions, and so I'm now uh, the lowest I've ever been in my golfing career, a handicap of 5.3, but uh, I do love my golf, it gets me out on the golf course, gets me out of the house, phone gets turned off, and I play golf with anyone who'll happily join me on the golf course. Well, Derek, if you've got a handicap of 5.3, I'm certainly not going to be joining you, I'll tell you that now. <laughs> Jason, there's always, t- I'll, I'll help you up, we'll give you all the tips you can, mate. Uh, if you do play golf badly, I'll tell you to stop playing golf altogether. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That is what I need to do. So, what we're going to do, Derek, straight away, we're going to rewind the clock back to, I believe, 1980, when you signed for Tranmere Rovers. So, really, uh, talk about your sort of junior football and, and how it all started at Tranmere. Well, well, junior, junior. It wasn't just junior football for me. It was junior sports. I played a lot of cricket, a lot of rugby, a lot of basketball, and football. Um, represented my area a few times, and and played to a decent standard in all, all four sports. And I gave up rugby in the summer of '78, um, and my final year at school. And uh, four months later, in January '79, Tranmere asked me to have a trial for their schoolboy team which was out then was called Prenton Park Rovers, um, yeah. which I joined, they took me on, uh, I signed a, a associate schoolboy forms, and in the end of that season, the manager, Johnny King, had to make a decision of which one of those 15 lads or 14 lads they would give the, the, the single apprenticeship to at the club. In those days, it was one apprentice at Tranmere. Nowadays, they have 10 or 15, what they call youth training schemes, YTS or, or scholars. And Johnny King saw something in me, gave me the opportunity. I spent the best part of 18 months um, cleaning boots, scrubbing floors, mopping floors, washing training kit, pumping balls up, brushing terraces, like all the apprentices did in those days. And then uh, around about, I think it was September, August, September in 1980, um, Johnny King uh, offered me a professional contract, which was gladly accepted on the princely sum of £30 a week in those days that's how much I was earning in 1980 um, Johnny King unfortunately got sacked a month before I signed I was due to sign the contract and I was a bit concerned that you know the, the club might withdraw the contract but it was a legally binding deal and Brian Howard the manager came in and eventually gave me my debut uh, I played 26 league games with Tramley in the next year and a half uh, two years and then all of a sudden the, the big move for me um, when Johnny uh, Brian Allen said to me, "There's a phone call. I've had a phone call. I want you to speak to this club." And I couldn't grab the phone quick enough because uh, being an Everton fan as a youngster, uh, there was Howard Kevin on the other end offering me a, a trial at Everton. And as I say, the rest is now history. Wow! I mean, 
back at that point, you know, that was a £30,000 move to Everton. The, the question I was going to ask, uh, but you've already answered it, was you blue or red growing up. So clearly you was an Everton fan. Yes, my, my, my dad, uh, my granddad and dad were both big Everton fans growing up uh, and they taught me the right way. They showed me that blue is the colour, red is not the colour. Um, and I, I look back in those days with, with my dad who talked about the, the, the late great Alec Young and and all these players he watched in the 50s and 60s, the Grace Gooden Park, Goodison Park uh, field. And my granddad was a, a mounted policeman who was on duty the day Dixie Dean scored the famous 60th goal for the, wow. the record top flight goal scorer. So my, my history of my family goes back a long, long way. And uh, for me, just to just to have the chance to sign for Everton was enough for me. People ask me what's my greatest achievement at Everton and a real off of FA Cup. So my greatest one is just putting pen to paper to to become an Everton footballer you know I never thought that would happen to me and, and that contract I've still got in pretty pristine condition because if I played one game or no games at least I've, I've, I've worn the Everton shirt professionally and I didn't know what would happen in that May 1982 when I signed for Everton that within two years I'd winning the league tight the FA Cup and in three years I'll be a league champion it, it happened very quickly very suddenly and when you get the opportunity you, you, you try not to throw it away you want to grab it with both hands and, and try and savour it and remember all the good times and, and you know everyone for me luckily for me we weren't doing particularly well when we got in this when I got in the side Andy Gray and Peter Reid got in around the same time as me and I didn't see the FA Cup within the first 30, 33 league games and you know, but if these things happen to people and you, you've got to remember that you're very fortunate to play the game of football and there's a lot of people out there that I feel were, were as good if not better than me when I was playing junior football that never got the opportunity uh, and I got the chance and I'm very grateful for that opportunity and I'm, I did have a, a wonderful 20 plus year career in the game but that's sadly well behind me now And uh, mm-hmm. but now it, lots and lots of fond memories of playing football for every club I played for it wasn't just Everton for me it was Every club I played for, I, I've always got an affinity for. I always look out for every team's results um, every week, see how they've done, look where they are. Delighted when Wolves getting got into the Championship, yeah. uh, into the Premier League. Disappointed when Chamley got relegated with this silly format over the last eight months. Yeah. You know, so I always check my old my old teams out. And if I'm honest, Jason, the one team I've had very little contact with and, and being back fewer is, is Wolves. Yeah. I've been back to Wolves. Any of the any of any of the other clubs have been I've played with, and um, we'll have to make sure that that is reconciled very very soon because it's a great place. It was a great place to play football. I loved it at Molyneux. I just wish it had been a bit longer than it actually was. Yeah, I mean Wolves now are actually better with the former players. Now they've formulated the the, the Wolves former players association, and uh, you know went through a period of time where there wasn't great contact with the former players and, you know, revered in the way they should be. But fortunately, that's changed, Derek. So if there's any more dinners, I'll make sure that, that you're on the list to attend. Um, g- going back to Everton, I mean, that, <laughs> you was at £30 a week at Tranmere, then a £30,000 move, I believe, to Everton. And, and you know, the success you had there was unbelievable. You won the FA Cup in 1984, the league in 84-85. The league again in 86-87. The European Cup Winners' Cup Final 84-85. I'm doing this from memory, by the way, Derek. Um, there was even an FA Cup Final defeat, you know, in 1985. But they must have been six glorious years for you, Derek, for, you, for your hometown club. Oh, well, well, for me, as I said, to join the club in, in 82 was... I couldn't believe it was happening to me. I was 19, just over 19 at the time, and I hadn't played many games in, in the Football League at the time. And I turned up at Everton, and I walked in. I actually went for a trial for a, for a game beforehand, and I walked in, and there was people like Steve McMahon, Mark Higgins, and Mick Lyons, all these players that I'd been watching from the terraces, and I'm going what am I doing here that I don't belong in this change room I really did feel a bit intimidated wow. um, but then eventually um, I actually signed a contract about three weeks after that game and I had the summer off and, it, and then I went back in pre-season it, it was a totally different experience for me because football lower league football pre-season was all about run 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 you never saw a ball for the first two weeks your sand hills around running tracks first day out at Everton Howard Kemp got the football out and I couldn't believe the way the difference from the two levels of football pre-season from the bottom league where it was all about fitness and Everton it was all about fitness but with the ball and it was an amazing transformation for me and I spent the first 
year and my, my tenure I've been working with her. I classed the greatest coach I've worked with in Colin Harvey. Yes. Um, he, he took me to one side and with all the young kids, he worked on our strengths to make them stronger, worked on our weaknesses to make them better and stronger. And I spent hours and hours in the afternoon with, with him working on the game and then I got became better good friends with Gary Stevens, who wasn't in the side early on, then got in the team. And we'd, we used to travel in, into training together because we lived close to each other. So we used to have about, spend about an hour or so in the afternoon just passing balls across the gym in this big sports hall, trying to clip the ball into certain areas. So I learned a lot of people around me and I, and I watched the Mark Higgins ears and I watched the Kevin Ratcliffe's. And at the time, it was Kevin and Mark. When I, sorry, when I first got it, Kevin wasn't even in the, in the team at the time. It was Billy Wright and Mark Higgins. Yeah. And then Billy Billy went and Kevin got in and then Mark got injured, never to play football again, sadly. Um, oh. And I, for my fortune, I, I got the opportunity to replace Mark and... I've said this to Mark Pearson, without someone's misfortune, um, I wouldn't have had my fortune. So I've got a big soft spot for Mark. He's a very good friend of mine. And he was a fantastic footballer, but unfortunately he, his groin flared up and he had to retire from the game. He did try a comeback and it didn't really work. And because of Mark's injury, I got my chance in the first team at Everton. I didn't think when I got into that first team in the November of 83, uh, we got booed off the pitch at... Goodison Park, Boxing Day 83. We came to Molyneux, got whooped 3-0 by Wolves on the 27th. And we were absolutely awful. Um, Then we went away, went back home again and and, and drew another 0-0 draw, booed off the pitch again. And eventually in the early January 84, we went to to Birmingham. um, uh, You might remember Evan had a very famous silver kit in those days, a silver grey kit. I do. Um, We were ready to play... uh, Birmingham, I think it was the 2nd of January under the floodlights and the referee knocked on the door about 10 to 3 or 10 to, 10 to 7, whatever it was, saying, Mr. Kennedy, you can't wear that kit today. It's going to clash with Birmingham's kit under the floodlights. And we're going, what do you mean? No, it's going to clash. So one, one wise crack from the back of the change room, probably Andy Gray or Peter Reed, he shouted, referee, are we in skins tonight then? And he went, no boys, don't worry. And he walked in with Birmingham City's away kit, which was yellow, blue and yellow, which I class as a traditional Everton away kit. We yeah. were amber, blue, amber. And we beat them 2-0. And we went on a 28-match unbeaten run. So if we hadn't changed our kit to Birmingham, would we have changed our, career, our, our time around? I don't know. Wow. But five, five months later, Jason, from being 17th in the table, being booed off the pitch, playing some dreadful football, we won the FA Cup. And then all of a sudden, a year later we were in the title I never saw that coming but something, something in that group of boys whether it be Andy Gray Peter Reid myself Kevin Ratcliffe Neville Sadler we became what I, I always classed the, the, one of the best teams I've played under because everyone knew the job everyone pulled pulled themselves into the right position everyone pulled the weight and if you didn't pull your weight you got told you weren't doing it right and that's what I liked about that team we, we, we were a strong group of players who weren't afraid to have a right go and bollock our teammates if we yeah. can do it right. Yeah. No animosity afterwards, it was a pint of beer afterwards, but you knew you had to improve the game. Uh, and that was one of the strongest things that that team had, a, a tremendous determination to be the best we could. And once you get that first victory, once we won the FA Cup, we realised we could probably be better than this. And next, the season after, in 84-85, we proved how good we were, despite losing the first two games of the season. I mean, that FA Cup final victory, uh, Everton 2, Watford nil. Andy Gray scored. Now, Everton had signed Andy Gray from Wolves for 250000 We'd signed him three years previous to that for a, a club record fee of around £1.5 million pounds, um, with, with the money that we'd sold Steve Daly to Man City for. Now, we sold him cup prize to Everton. How pivotal was, was Andy Gray in that success, Derek? Andy, Andy was crucial at Jason him and Peter Reid came in. Peter Reid had been signed a bit earlier and, and he, he had dodgy knees and he was struggling. And I think Andy Gray's medical must have been fudged because I'm sure he brought a, a big, thick file. He was given a big, big file of his medical history. And when, he, when we got to Howard Kendall, it was about three pages deep. He must have thrown all the medical history away, Andy Gray. Because he, shouldn't re- he shouldn't really have passed the medical because he, he wasn't in a good state. But yeah. he could see what was happening and he wanted to come to Everton. Um, yes. You know, he he was outstanding. He he was a character. He was bubbly. He was lively. He was loud, very loud at times. Um, but he he brought a, a winning mentality, a determination to to be the best we could, and we're not we're not going to be second best to anybody. And it took a while for everything to sink in and gel together. But Peter and Andy Gray, you know, were, were pivotal in, in 
us becoming what we were. But as I said before, not just that, but Colin Harvey came from his uh, team manager to first team coach in that time as well. And it just think, it's hard to say how it happened, but things just clicked very quickly. Yeah. And we became a very bang average, I will say a bang average side, to being a side that had belief, played good entertaining, attacking football, were disciplined, were organised. We could be nasty if we wanted to, but we did play some excellent football in, in, in that two and a half, three years of three and a half years of football and I look back and think Andy Gray was for me was crucial in, in, in us becoming what we were because he'd been at Villa he'd been at Wolves he'd won League Cups and he scored winning goals he'd been a PFA Player of the Year he played for Scotland he, and he wanted to be the best he could and yeah. I think he saw something with the way Howard Kendall spoke to him and told him what he wanted and you look at the way Graham Sharp developed with Andy Gray alongside him. Graham Sharp, for me, became pound for pound probably the best striker yes. of his generation. He had, he had control of the ball, he could head the ball, he had a left foot, a right foot, he could be mean and nasty. And I think Andy Gray helped Graham Sharp immensely become the player he was. And that rubbed off at everybody around him. And I think Howard Kendall appreciated the work Andy Gray did Yes, you know, in making us what we were. But I know Andy Gray still has a soft spot for Molyneux and all that, but... He was very, very important for becoming what we were at Oh, 100%. I mean, you know, obviously he scored the, the winning goal for Wolves in the League Cup final and, he, you know, he did have a knack for the big games. Now, it, Liverpool were dominating the league and, and most cup competitions in the 80s. When you won the league in 84-85, 13 points clear of second place Liverpool. And in 86-87, 11 points clear of Liverpool. I mean, does it make the league victory all the more sweeter when you beat your local rivals like that? It always does. Um, it's one of those situations. Liverpool at the time, for me, were, were the best team around. They, they, they had a, a belief and understanding that they won trophies on a consistent basis. And I said before, your first one's the hardest to win. And once they got that first European title with Bob Paisley and they won the league again, it, they, they became a juggernaut and they, they just steamrolled everybody else. And it's a bit like Man City, Liverpool have done over the last couple of years when teams are frightened to go and play them because they're not expecting to win and, and that's what I think Everton and a lot of clubs had prior to to us becoming what we were but we, we, once we beat Liverpool Anfield in 80, November, October 84 we beat them one there with a, a super Graham Sharp volley we realised that we're as good as them and we can match them yeah. and that was the turning point we, we, we believe, once you believe you're as good as somebody else around you it's so much easier to beat them but when you, you get intimidated by the players in the team and the media speculation and media this, it's very hard to, to beat them. But once we beat Liverpool, we, we realised we could we could play football. Then we beat Man United 5-0 a couple of weeks later. Then we beat wow. Notts Forest 5-0. And we, we went on one of them runs where we, we, we were just invincible. We believed we were invincible. Um, but to win the league by 13 points in 84-85, despite losing the first two games of the season yes. and being bottom of the table... You know, it, it was an outstanding achievement. And, oh. you know, you, you look back and think, how did it turn around? But again, it's that belief, that understanding, that determination. We got very lucky in the European Cup first round of playing a, a group of amateurs from University College Dublin, early students. We we, we didn't, we, we just couldn't score goals. And after that, we got through that. Then we got another one. And it was just confidence. Confidence rose and breeds more confidence. And you saw that with Molly, with Wolves over the previous couple of years when they got into the Premier League and when, when they got out of the Championship. You see the confidence grow. You see the momentum gain. And once you get that momentum, yeah. it rolls off from the, from the team into the fans, into the, into the media. And everyone starts go pushing in the same direction. But when it's going the wrong way, which has been ever in recent years, that the, the, the negative is outweigh the positives too much. Yes. But we just created, like Wolves did, you create positives around you and that pushes you on, it drives the fans on. And you, I know I know, I know, people, I speak to people now, my mates and they, we went to every game expecting to win. If we went 1-0 down, we knew it would have been 2-1. Wow. And, and that, that that's what you get. And I think Wolves had that a couple of years ago when they came out of the Championship. You know, that, that expectation level Yes, it wasn't, there was no negatives around the ground. It was all positives, and that's what Liverpool have had the last couple of years. It's been so positive there. Everton have had too many negatives, and we've got to get rid of that. Even the fans before they go to the game, they, they, they go, oh, "We're going to get beat today. Oh, it's going to be tough today." Not, "Hey, we're, I can't wait to today's game. It's going to be brilliant. We're going to we're going to win this one." The mentality of fans before the game sets the tone in the stadium for me. And, and that was like it was like that before we got onto that run. But once we got into that run, the, the the fans expected, and we expected, and it, you could hear it rolling around the ground. 
and the atmosphere was just tremendous for those three or four seasons. It really wasn't. I mean, to be honest, Derry, what's interesting is I don't think Everton have won a great deal since. So what a successful, you know, period that was. And how sad was you in, in the June of 88? Um, you, you made the move to Aston Villa, £400,000. Uh, obviously, great signing for Villa. A lot of experience with yourself, who's, who's won a lot of medals. You, you joined up with Graham Taylor for the first time. But how sad was it to leave Everton? Um, I had a difficult couple of years because in the summer of '86, um, I released a, 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 a chapter in a book about two years ago. Um, I had a epileptic fit in the summer of '86. Um, right. I'm epileptic since, so I've had two fits in my life. And I had a fit in the summer of '86 during just the start of pre-season. And Howard Kendall immediately signed a centre half called Dave Watson. I've got yeah. no issues with Dave Watson. Fantastic person, good friend, great footballer. And after that, I, for the next two seasons, I played very little football at Everton. Right. I really, really did struggle to I get did. a game in the team. And if I, if I did play well and got on the team, Dave was always back in. Because when you pay a million pounds for somebody, like you pay for Dave and you pay, you pay 30 grand for little old Dexy, you know, he's going to get him before me. And yeah. for the next two seasons, if I played 30 games over the next, last, next two seasons, I think I did well. Uh, and then I did my knee, I damaged my knee in a pre-season, uh, a uh, reserve team fixture at Leeds and spent three months out repairing it with a, uh, a ligament damage. Yeah. Um, so, the end of 88 eight season, Colin Harvey had a year in charge as manager as Howard had gone. Um, I said to Colin, look, Colin, I need, I need to go. I need, I need to play football. I, I can't have another season where you take around the country as the, the odd man out of the 13-man playing yeah. team. I said, I need to play football. You know, I don't want to sit in the stands and travel on a, on a Tuesday, play Wednesday, or sit on the bench or sit in the stands of an away game on the 30. I, I need to play football. And we agreed eventually that, that you know, we'll have a look when they come back from pre-season uh, and end of season tour. By that stage, Graham Taylor had been in touch with the club trying to see if I was available. Yeah. Uh, and Colin said, you know, if you want to go, you can go. And to be honest, it was a decision I made with a heavy heart because I'm an Evertonian. I love the club. I had great success. But I wanted to play football. And Graham Taylor gave me the opportunity to play football again. Yeah. I didn't have a particularly great first season. It was my first big move away from home. My wife and a young child stayed at home on the Willow for the first five months, six months of my time down there. So I struggled a little bit. Um, but then, you know, you, you find your feet you get, you get, and, and you start playing good football. But, but Graham Taylor, for me, was a, was a wonderful, wonderful person. Um, people talk about Howard Kendall, how good he was, but I put Graham Taylor on a par with Howard Kendall. His his right. knowledge of the game, his his treatment of players as people, not as not as commodities. He treated you as a as a person. Yeah. Uh, I've got had I had an awful lot of time for Graham. Um, I loved working under him. He, he was enjoyable to play. It was always a laugh. Uh, and I remember one time when my son had a few medical issues. Uh, he had some fits. And Graham said, you do not come into this training ground until your son is right. He says, family comes before football. Wow. Um, and I always remember that when he said, you, you, I actually went back to training the following day. So what are you doing? He said, I told you not to come in. And he sent me out. He sent me, he said, you're not coming. You, you, you go back to, you look after your son. And then the, that afternoon he came in, he came in to see us, me and my wife and my son. And, and he brought a lovely bouquet of flowers. And, and I remember that ever so well because he treated us as human beings. He knew we were going through a tough spell. He knew that football wasn't on the forefront of my mind. And he made sure that I got my family right. So Graham did a lot of things that people don't don't know about. Yeah. Um, and I think the Wolves players who played under him in, in 94 or 95 ish, and when he went back to Villa, he, he, had a, he was a different type of manager. He wasn't all about, I'm the, I'm the big I am. He yeah. looked after players as people, and I've got a lot. I had a lot of time for him. Obviously, when he when he came back to Villa to Wolves, I'll I'll, I'll, read, I'll go on about that later on. There was yeah. a few problems between me and Graham at the time, but you know, I was disappointed um, to leave Wolves. Very, very disappointed to leave Wolves because I was discussing a contract with Graham Turney before he got sacked, and I thought it was still going to go ahead. And then when Graham came in, I thought I did okay for him. Yes. And I was very disappointed when he when he when he let me go at the end and I, I told him to his face. I told him he'd made he'd done it all wrong and everything else and um you know, I didn't dislike him after that. I met him a few times at um Villa Park when he came back. I went down to Watford to see him. Um and I went down a couple of years ago just before he died to see him, but unfortunately he wasn't well and didn't come to the game. 
Um, and about three weeks later, the, the great man sadly passed. But a lot, lot, lot of time for Graham Taylor as, as a person and as a manager. The only problem was the England job wasn't the right job for him. He took, it was the right, right job, but the wrong person took it. Yeah. Um, he, he was, he was a club manager. He's not, a, he's not a national manager. He's a club manager. He thrives on the day-to-day involvement of working in football. And as an England manager, you're, you're isolated from the from the players too much. He's a club manager and one of the best club managers I've played under. Oh, certainly. Now, obviously, we, we, I want to come to Grant Taylor at your Wolves time because when he joined Wolves, it was at the back of the, uh, the the England job and it was a tough job for him. His first job back in club football. But before that, it was Graham Turner that signed you for Wolves. The big move that you'd waited for, Derek, all your career. £150,000 in the November of 1991 to the Mighty Wolves. Um I mean, I'm sure you knew the rich history of the club. Um, but when you got there, I, I don't suppose it was the club that you remembered from, you know, the successful 1970s, you know, and, and before. Yeah, I, I played there with Villa a couple of times. We, I think we went through in the League Cup. I think it was two, two or three, one or three to an aggregate. And I played there a couple of years before that. I turned up at Molyneux to, to speak to Graham Turner and I looked around at the ground and I thought, what? Because you were in the process of knocking down the the water out in the main stand, yeah, and yeah. I walked in. I'm going, what have I come here for? What's this? And you speak to Graham Turner, and he expresses what he wants. You meet the boys, and he then goes and sits next to the bull train in the changing room. I spent three months trying to work out what Bully was saying. Um, <laughs> it took me that long to understand him and work him out. Um, but no, it, I, I came to Molyneux again to play football because Big Ron had come into Villa um, and he made it clear that I wasn't part of his plans and you know he, he was he was brutally brutally nasty to a lot of people Big Ron when he, when he came in he was really? if you weren't you were in his plans you were literally you, you could train with the kids I don't want you near me and he got with a lot of the people that Graham Taylor had brought into Mollet to Wolves and he changes he brought bigger players in and bigger names in so understand that you, you don't always figure in your, man, in your, in your new manager's um, plans, but you know, I started the first that season, the first team, and then he let, left me out without even telling me. Which I still to this day can't work out why the manager can't talk to a player. Wow. Um, and then I got the chance to come alone to Molyneux, so uh, I did a, a two month spell at Molyneux. Um, I think it was Lottie Madden was there. I think Gary Bellamy, yeah. Shane Wesley with a back line, Stallion. Uh, Paul Jones at the back, Kevin Ashley at right back, yeah. Andy Thompson, Mark Venus are all there, Bully, Muchy, Cookie, Robbie Denno. There's a good group of players there. Yes. And uh, it started off okay. Um, and then after two months, I remember Graham Taylor, Graham Taylor saying, right, son, uh, I want a third month. I said, no, nah, not for me at the moment. I said, if you want to sign me, I'd rather come I'd rather come and sign for you than come on loan again. Yeah. Um, I think I've done enough if you want me. So uh, I drove back to Villa Park and Bill Bodymore he's at the time and drove into the car park part of the car walked into into the building and Big Ron goes hey what are you doing here I thought we bloody sold you <laughs> I went no he's steady on mate um, Ron thought we, we did agree did he I said no I've not signed nothing I've not even talked contracts I said and you talk to you first so I popped into Ron I said if you're going to sell me I, I want my car I've had a car for three years, Mark McGuire. He said, oh, now I need your car. Let's go to Dean Saunders when we sign it. I'm thinking, hold on a minute. He'd already allocated me car. I haven't got even left the club. Um, so very quickly, he says, you go back up there. And, and he spoke to the hierarchy of Villa Park. And yeah. Villa Park spoke to Molyneux. And I went back and had a oh, half an hour, an hour with Graham Turner. Agreed the contract. Agreed this, agreed that. And I put pen to paper on a two and a half year deal uh, to the summer of 94, which... I look back and I, I loved it. I could I could see Molyneux changing, yes. you know, from being the, the ramshackled, untidy old ground it was yeah. to this magnificent stadium. It, it became in a very short space of time. Um, and I saw that redevelopment and we had some good games at Villa Park, Villa Park sorry, at Molyneux. We had some poor games. We we never we never quite just clicked into a, yeah. a continuous positive frame of mind. And, you know, he then tried... Uh, Graham tried to bring in some bigger names. We brought in Jeff Thomas, Kev Keane, uh, Dave Kelly, yeah. uh, in in the hope that that would would kick us on again. But we we just never got that that proper sort of team team ethic and team spirit and, and team sorted out. It was we just never quite got there. We were so close, I think, to being on that, but we just never quite got there. Um, 
for me, Derek, I mean, listen, I've been supporting Wolves. Uh, that was really my era when I was going to the games. And to be honest, it was sort of renewed hope. Those three seasons, I, I yeah. thought we was definitely, definitely worthy of a playoff spot. We had the team on paper. The 91-92 season, your first season, Derek, we finished 11th. 92-93, 11th again. 93-94, rightly so, with the signings of Jeff Thomas, uh, Kevin Keane and David Kelly. We missed the playoffs by three points. What, what do you think was missing, Derek? Because if you look at the team we had across the team, especially the 93-94 season, that was a more than good enough team of doing some serious damage. Bully was still scoring goals for fun, but it just didn't quite didn't quite click, did it, Derek? Yeah, I, I, I can't put a finger on it. We, I, said, but I thought we were very, very close to, to being where we, where we should have been. We had a good group of players in there. We had a, a good... Fans behind us who wanted us yeah. to do well. And I, I just can't put it. We just, we just, it was just something missing. Whether it was a another centre half, another goalkeeper, a, another striker with bully, or another, I don't know. There was just something that never really clicked. And I had a, I had a spell that season out. I, I picked up some form of infection or virus from somewhere, yeah. uh, and I lost a lot of weight and and wasn't very well at all. Came back into training and I was wearing too hard. My first couple of days back into training and I relapsed again. And when I got back, you know, we weren't quite there. I remember going to uh, Chelsea in the FA Cup uh, on the Saturday or Sunday. I think it was a Sunday afternoon, live on the telly. And Graham yeah. Turner put me on the bench and I'm thinking, well, 1-0 down. Come on, throw me on. I'll go up front and I'll get you the goal. And uh-huh. I never left the bench. Uh, and then we went straight from there to Portsmouth. For, and we had uh, Sunday, Monday nights at Portsmouth. And we played Portsmouth Tuesday night. Yes. and. We were, we were bloody awful. We were absolutely dreadful. I think, I, I always say that that was one of Howard Kendall's strengths. He never, ever changed the routine. Howard would have brought us back home on the Sunday and travelled down again on the Monday. He didn't like people being away from home for too long because you get tired, you get bored, and when you're bored, you get even more tired and lethargic. So we spent two days training or tipping around and then hanging around a hotel and but we were absolutely shocking away at Portsmouth that I played and I must I didn't play well it was my first game in the first team for about three months so we didn't play well and and that's when all the aggravation actually really did kick off because um, Jonathan Haywood then said yeah. to the Graham Taylor back on the bus boys he said hold on we're getting changed first we're, no back on the bus now we're going and he, he there was a big fallout I think between the two of them in the dressing room area change room area somewhere and so we all got showered and changed we were all absolutely gutted because we, we knew we hadn't played well we just got beat in the FA Cup yeah. quarterfinals or whatever it was or fifth. and then we get beat upon we're all, we're all low we're disappointed and we got on the bus and he literally said right driver go and there was no food there was no drink there was nothing on the coach all the way back home from Portsmouth and uh, then he stopped the bus a mile from Molyneux and gave us all a dressing down. Oh, this is the chairman. And I'm going, hold on a minute. Yeah. That should be the manager's job. And we knew yeah. straight away that, unfortunately, Graham was going to lose his job the following day. It was blatantly obvious what was coming up. Uh, I did feel for Graham. I really did. Um, because he, he, he did a great job in getting Wolves out from where they were to where they were. Um, but then what happened that night was, for me, was an absolute disgrace. Um, I thought the chairman was, was right out of order that night. He, he certainly was. I mean, what... Derek, you know, there was a lot of change at the club at that time. The Hayward family, in particular, put a lot of money into the club. That's why when you got there, quite rightly, you know, the, the ground was a ramshackle. It then turned into this all-singing-and-dancing, uh, all-seater stadium. And, you know, it, it just couldn't click on the pitch. But you, you're quite right there. Jonathan Hayward, it, it's not really his position to, to, to give a dressing down to the players, nor to the manager in front of the players. And I think... Really, that was the beginning of the end. And I believe it was Guy Whittingham I interviewed on the podcast. And, and quite similarly, where um, I think he just joined the club on loan. And, you know, mm-hmm. there was a promise of a, of a permanent deal at the end of the loan spell. And, and like for you, Derek, you know, there was a chance of another deal on the table. And when Graham Turner sadly left, all those deals were gone and, and Graham Taylor come in. And so for you, when, when Graham Taylor got the job, did you feel that maybe because you'd played under him at Aston Villa, there was there was an opportunity then for you, a new start, and, and maybe, you know, you could kick on under Graham? No, certainly, because I was approached by the secretary of the club um, before the, they signed Graham to ask about what my thoughts on him were. And I said, if you want to get out of this league, 
and get this club right, you've got the right man in Graham Taylor. Yeah. I said, he will get this club out of this league, he will get this club organised, he'll get us playing football, get us fitter, get us organised. So I, I was actually approached by the club before they appointed Graham, and I thought it was a great appointment for us, I really did. Um, I got into the team, I was doing okay, and then I remember going to Notts County, um, and there was a load of tennis on top of the dugout, the fans oh. were really brutal with Graham, and oh. I played alongside Peter Shirtliff and as a centre-half, you know, we always covered each other and Shirtliff missed, missed the head and I bent down and I, as I headed the ball away, he stooped down to edit, pulled Devlin, followed me in the eye and, and split the bait about two millimetres below my eyelid, the base of my eye, split it wide open and I was, there was no blood, it was a clean cut and my eye closed and, you know, I came off and I, I couldn't see a thing and I was stitched up in the changing room and then we, we, we got back on the coach, my eyes closed, and we went away to Millwall, I think, a couple of day, about a week later or a couple of days later, and I couldn't see, I couldn't even open my eye, and I, I was, the doctor had stitched me up, and he's put the big patch over my eye to make it weep, because if you make it, the, the eye weep, it gets all the debris and the dirt and the poison out your eye, and yeah. Graham, was expecting me, Graham was expecting me to play, I think, on the Wednesday at Middlesbrough, and at Millwall, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't have played, I couldn't see, and after that, his relationship with me, changed totally right. whether he thought I was pulling the wool over his eye I don't know but I could not have played at Millwall because my, my eye was still swollen I couldn't see properly out of it um, and then end of the season we finished the season and he says right boys we're, we're not fit enough we're not going to come every, every Tuesday and every Thursday we're going to train right way through May you get all of June off you're back in on the 1st of July and then we went in one day and I can't think who was with him at the time as his assistant pinned a piece of paper on the notice board Steve in the Harrison? changing room. Steve Harrison? I don't know if Steve was there then. I think whether Steve came after that, I don't know. Right. Whether, whether Graham had inherited Rob Kelly and them, I don't know. Or I can't Stuart remember. Gray, maybe? No, just trying to think. Go on, sorry. No, well, Stuart wasn't there. No, yeah. I played with Stuart at Bella, but no. Yes. But they pinned this piece of paper on the, on the notice board and the first four were the four young lads who just had year, two year contracts given to them. Jamie, Jason Smith was or Jamie Smith was yeah. one of them so they all went in first one by one three got released one got kept on and the next seven or eight all went in and all got released and the bottom four all got contracts and I thought the way Graham did that was totally and utterly wrong you don't bring everybody in at the same time yeah. you give an appointment and come in every hour for three or four days but he did it all that way and I, I went to see him I said go on then I know, I know what you're going to say to me yeah, I'm not going to give you the con. I said, well, you're out of order. I said, it's, the way you've done it is diabolical. It's wrong. I expected a bit more from you. And we had a bit of a bit of a serious talk with each other. I said, you're, you're making a mistake because I, I want to play for you. I, wanna, I don't want to leave this golf, this club. I'm happy here. I want to yeah. stay. And uh, he went, well, I've made a decision now. Uh, there you go. There's, there's your, your, your piece of paper saying you're being released. You're a free agent. Oh, As of the 30th of June. Um, and I was a bit disappointed. That I thought the way, he, the way he did that was was not the Graham Taylor way for me. Whether yeah. he was told to do it that way, I don't know. But but that wasn't a Graham. Graham normally is put your arm around you, give you a proper explanation as to why he's done it. But I just thought the way he did it was, was totally wrong. And I, at the time, I lost a bit of respect for him. But then I quickly got it back because I knew what he was like for me and what he is. But the way he did that on that day, to this day, still bugs me a little bit because I wanted to stay at Bonham. I was happy there. I wanted to stay and play. I could see, I could see Graham because, as I said, the club he'll get you out of this league, and I wanted to be part of that. Even if he didn't play a lot of games, I knew that I could help people around Graham and Graham take us onto the next, the walls onto the next level. But he did it, and I, I understand that. And I was disappointed, and I then had to try and find a, another club. And again, it's a disappointment. That was the first time since 1979 was actually what they call a free agent I didn't have a club so if I couldn't find a club yeah. I was finishing football I didn't know what I was going to do um, and I spent a lot of time bringing clubs speaking to clubs sending letters out to clubs and you get the same old reply sorry we're not doing trials this year I said I don't want to try you know what I am who I am do you want to no I don't you see, you see Derek Sorry to interrupt, that's what I think is quite strange because at that point, you know, you're 32 years of age, you're an experienced defender, you've won the league, you've won the FA Cup, you've won the European Cup Winners' Cup, you've played for top flight teams, you've been at Wolves 
for a long time as well. I mean, you played over 100 games for Everton. I think nearly the same for Villa and, and 91 yep. games for Wolves. You shouldn't be going on trial. And looking back, the way Grant Taylor did it was almost how the YTS players used to get released when they line them up, call them in the office one by one. Have you got a contract? Yes or no. And to do that to an experienced pro is a bit of an injustice, really, for, for the player you was, for what you'd done for the club. Um, or your clubs, I should say. And it, and it was a bit of an injustice. There was one thing I wanted to come back to very quickly, Derek, was um, you mentioned him earlier, Steve Ball. Now, you're one of the few players that obviously played with Steve Ball and, and played against him. I couldn't yeah. remember if you played in that match at Molyneux for Aston Villa where Bully scored a header and he got knocked out. Knocked out by Nigel Spink. Yes, I did. Yeah. I did play in that game, yeah. Yes. That's all I was talking about before. You know, Steve, Steve Bull, you know, was simply a goal scorer. He's yeah. the only person I knew who could have his eyes closed, facing the opposite way and still find the back of the net. Yeah. His, his goal scoring was phenomenal. He he had one thing in his mind and that was to score goals. You know, people know that he wasn't good enough. But he was good enough to play for England. He was good enough to go to the World Cup. You know, he it, it, when he went to England in the World Cup, he was one of these players that other club countries didn't know about because he was he, he's played in what in league in league two. Yeah. But what about the top league? Who is this lad? He had that surprise element, and as you saw, scoring the goal against Scotland on his debut, and then you know he, he was a goal scorer. Uh, first of all, he was a pure goal scorer. Yeah. I still see him now. I get on great with Bully. He's a, he's a laugh and a joke, life and soul of a party. Um, but does he? Does I wonder whether Bully does have a get of not going to play in the top flight and have a go at cha- a top flight football? You know, he was a he is a legend at Molyneux, an absolute legend, rightly so. But I just wonder whether he does regret not having a go at the top flight and playing in the first division. Yeah, uh, I, mean, I always think about that because I, I think he was good enough to go to that level because I I played with him and I played against him and I, and not until you play with him you realize how good a player he is. I knew what it, what it was like as a striker. I knew how to do you know work against him and play with him. But him and Mochi were a good combination. But I just wonder whether he looks back and thinks maybe I should have gone and tried playing yeah. in the first division at the time. Um, he, we, we'll never know. He didn't do it. He did do, but rightly so. At Molyneux, his goal-scoring record was phenomenal, and he was always hard to play against. Very, very hard to play against. Um, and I played with I got on with Paul McGrath that time. He went to to Molyneux, um, and, and Paul was it again. Paul was the best player I've played with. Full stop. He was absolutely outstanding. And, he knew what Bully was like as well, and we talked about Bully, and we, we, we worked hard to, 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 to stop him playing and stop him scoring. But I remember the goal when he ended the ball, and Nigel Spink basically took his head off. <laughs> but typical Steve Bully gets up again, bit of smelling songs, he's back on the pitch and going for it. That, that was Bully. I mean, Bully was all, all or nothing. That, that goal, Derek, Nigel Spink, like you said, took his head off, and he, he got knocked out in the process and still scored. I mean, if. Yeah. What, what more can you do is a, a you know a defensive and goalkeeper partnership. You, you knock out the opposition striker and he still scores. You got no chance, have you? Yeah, you, you can't. But that was bullying nowadays. He'd have been off the field up play, stretched off with a, yeah. his neck in a brace and head injury assessment. But in those days, I played with broken noses, split eyes, uh, foreheads cut open. You didn't start. You wanted to play football. You didn't want to come off. But Bully would have run through a brick wall to score a goal at Molyneux off yeah. the walls. He, he wouldn't care what he was. He was a better player than people, gave, people actually gave him credit for for me. Now, for you, Derek, um, looking at your career, uh, it finished at, it was Carlisle, Northampton, Warsaw, then Scarborough, and I believe York. Now, 600 career appearances. Um, and I suppose as well, in 1984, I believe you got an England under-21 cap versus Spain and a, and a B cap appearance as well. That that. Yeah. That must have been um, a real proud moment for you to, to represent your country, uh, which is the first question. And secondly, 600 career appearances is, is, is huge. Well, first and foremost, the England stuff, it's always your ambition to, to play for your country. Um, I won the European Under-21 Championship final with England against Spain in 84 for making England Under-21 debut. I then got one full or under one B cap in the following October in the time and then after that I never received a call up from a country and you know it's great to wear the three lines on your share but mine always say intermediates they don't say full cap and that's one of my biggest disappointments in my career I never got a full call up from a country and despite playing in three cup finals on the bounce with the yeah. league twice finishing twice tw- uh, twice twice um, 
finished second twice and, and I thought playing some decent football good stuff and I never received a full call up from a country so I never got a full cap from a country yeah. and that for me is probably my biggest disappointment in football because you know it, 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 you, when you play football and, and you get to a high standard and and you start getting recognised and talk like your aim is to try and play for your country uh, and I'm disappointed that Bobby Robson at the time didn't um, see me as a, as a possible you know <laughs> Uh, England, England centre half. You know, in '86, I had a good season and never made the squad for the World Cup. In 1990, we just finished second with Villa and never made the squad again. I just yeah. wonder whether Bobby Robson didn't feel I was good enough to play for him for England. But then I look at other players who played in front of me. Um, personally, I feel I was as good, if not better, than a lot of players that got caps. So that for me is my biggest disappointment in football. By the way, it's gone now. It's by the by. I do have two England caps. I do have some shares. But would have been nice to say I'm a full international. Yeah. Which I was the only one of, of the Everton team in the 84-85 that never got a full cap. Oh. Um, everyone else got cap. Everyone else got capped by the countries. Um, and I was the only one. So it's disappointing. A very big disappointment for me. But it's ne- I've got no regrets playing football, Jason. I can't have a regret. No. Um, but that, that's one of the biggest disappointments I've had is I never got a full cap. I, I, I think personally I was good enough. Other people tell me I should have played. Yeah. But I never did. And it's a disappointment. I, I, I accept that. But it would have been nice to have walked out on an England cap with Gary Stevens at right back and Peter Reid in front of me and Gary Stevens at right wing and Gary Lynn in the group front it would have been nice to be part of the England group that came from Everton at that time but I never got the opportunity and uh, by the by now it's history yeah now 600 career appearances as well Derek um, well, that's just it, it felt a lot more Jason <laughs> <laughs> I bet he does now <laughs> it said he does now yeah oh brilliant and I, I genuinely no, didn't know I, that... I, 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 oh go on I didn't realise it was that many. Um, I don't know. I don't keep a track of how many games yeah. I play for each club, people tell me. But a lot of these stats, people tell me, they only ever put the league games in. They don't put the cup games in. I know for a fact I only played, only started 100 league games for Everton. Yeah. Um, and I had six sub-appearances. But I played nearly 50, F- uh, 50 cup ties in the wow. same period. So it shows you how, many, how successful we were. Well, yes. I played nearly 50 cup games for Everton. But only played, a, only started a hundred league games. In I only really got, uh, only really played for Everton for three seasons in the first team, really, because the first season I played one game, then I had two full seasons, a bit part in the third, and then a very, very little in my second, my fifth, and sixth season. So those hundred appearances came in basically three seasons in the league. Derek, so your, your trophy cabinet tells a different story, mate. Uh, it does. Um, <laughs> I was very lucky to be part of that team, Jason. I, as a blue, blue myself and. I watched Everton through the through the seventies. I was too young to watch. I was only about six or seven when Alan Ball and Howard Kendall, Conor Harvey, part of the sixty-nine seventy cup winning side. And then I got me into the into the team. And I got into the, the, the season ticket era at Everton, and we got to Wembley in eighty seventy-seven and lost to Villa in the final. We, we got beat by a dodgy um, decision by a referee in the semi-final of the FA Cup and yeah. Everton won nothing from 69 all of a sudden I'm in the first team and it, hold on a minute I've only played 30 games and I've won the FA Cup wow. and there's all these players before me the Nick Lyons the Bob Latchfords all these right classes personal friends now but great footballers won nothing in the career and there's me in the first season first team winning the FA Cup in the second I'm a league champion I still find that very very hard to believe that this young lad from Liverpool who was brought to on the Weddle, six foot one, six foot two, skinny as a rake with a silly moustache, did as well as he did. Um, but it's very, very, I'm very, very proud to be, be known as part of the greatest ever Everton team. But as I said to someone last night when I did golf day afterwards and I did a little Q&A, I said, it's great being part of the greatest Everton team. Why aren't we the second best or the third best team? And that means that Everton have gone on to win more trophies and be successful. Yeah. Same as Bully's known about his era. You want to be the second, third, fourth best because you want your club to go on to win things and yeah, be better. Yeah. But we've point. just struggled. We've struggled for, for 30 years since our Kendall left. And we've won one FA Cup in the, in, since 1986, 87. And, and that's for Everton is a, is a shockingly poor return. Yeah, you know, we, we, we should have more. And it's lovely being part of the greatest team, but let's 
let's shift that tag. Let's be second, third and fourth. Yeah. I want Everton as a fan to win trophies. Same as Bully wants Wolves to go and win trophies all the time. He loves being part of the club. He loves what he is. But he wants to see Wolves win trophies. Oh, he does. Everton just haven't done that for years. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Derek. Now one's going to beat 306 goals for the club. I mean, they're going to have to uh, be playing much, I very much doubt that. There again, no one got a chance. He just nicked everyone's ball. He'd tap it in from two inches, ball. He'd nick a goal off much, wouldn't he? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> listen. You know, I remember Kevin Ashley telling a story on his podcast and he said, a ball, a ball come across and he said he, he beat Bolly to it and scored and the Wolves fans booed him because they thought Bolly had scored. <laughs> when when the yes, night was Kevin yes. Ashley, he got a, he got booed. I tell you what was yeah. quite what was quite interesting. Well, very interesting. Earlier on in the podcast, Eric, you referred to the fact that that you had a, a, an epileptic fit. I mean, ha, ha, you've had two in your life. Um, mm-hmm. Do you still have to take medication now? You know, I mean, what what exactly happened? Well, I had one in the summer of 84 as a 12-year-old, and, um, and the next one came at the age of 24. Um, I had no symptoms. I just remember waking up in hospital, dead about two and a half hours later. Um, I don't take medication. Um, I had all the tests. Um, they found it was linked to tiredness, and also I'm suspect, suspected, uh, suspect to flashing lights, so strobe lighting and that sort of stuff. So I have to be careful where they go, what I do. So... If I go to big sporty events that's flashing lights, strobe light, I have to be very careful. You quite often see me, if you ever see me, I'll close my eyes, put my hand over my eyes. But All right, I don't okay. take any medication. I, I, I self-manage it. They took me off the medication as a youngster very early. Um had all the tests to get an 86 and they said the same again. So I just make sure I don't put myself into situations where I could have another one. I've been totally fit-free since 86. I've had none that I know of anyway. Um, but I just don't put myself in situations yes. and, and have to work within, within the special needs education sector for the last 16 years as a sports coach, working with children who, who do have fits, who do have autism and dance and do and settle the body. I understand why the parents and people are very, very nervous when they go into situations that they're not sure of. Yes. So I make sure that I don't put myself in any situation where I can possibly induce myself into having another fit. So you'll always see me being sensible, not being stupid. I try not to get overly drunk, but that doesn't always work, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so it's just it's just being careful with your life. I, yeah. I know I know my body now. I'm I'm nearly sixty. I know what it feels like. So I've had days where I've been out with people, and I'm saying, right, I'm going. What do you yeah. mean? I'm going, That's and right. I'll just walk away from a, from a night out, and I take myself home, and I go to bed, and I sleep for twelve hours. I know my body now, I know what it is, so anyone who has these fits, I know exactly how they feel. I know some people who are still having to take medication for it for the rest of their life, uh, and that's very difficult to do all the time. But anyone who has a, 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 a last sort of illness, I know exactly how they feel, but it's just I just have to be careful myself. I know exactly where my body is telling me, yeah. you've done too much. Wow! I wish you the best of luck, obviously, in the future with that, Derek. And, and, and finally, what what jobs have you done? Because I know you went into football management, but what jobs have you done since football away from football? Because it's quite interesting the the education path that you took. Yeah, well, I left football seven ninety nine playing league football. Tried a bit of non league football. Didn't really enjoy it. Yeah. Um, got an opportunity. I did a, a personal training diploma. I became a, a fitness fitness guru, a fitness coach, personal yeah. trainer, and then work for the company trying to market it and sell it on the, on Merseyside. And then I got a phone call and I took the Cork City manager's job, yeah. um, which looking back was probably the wrong thing to do at the wrong time. Yeah. Um, I thought it was the right thing at the right time, but looking back, it probably wasn't. Um, the promises they made me um, didn't materialise. I made mistakes, um, but you learn from mistakes and we parted company in 2001, um, and then I thought, do I need football? Probably not. So I went back into the marketing side for the fitness company, and I then got the opportunity with the PFA to go to university to do a, a sports coaching, sports science coaching degree, yeah. which I started in 2002 at the age of 14, came out three years later with a, a sports and exercise science with coaching degree. Yeah. Um, probably the hardest three years of my life, but I also very enjoyable three years of my life because I learned so much in those three years that I should have known during my playing days. Um, and I think the young players now and the, the PFA should be making so the young players do some of these degrees very early in their career 
because yeah. you learn so much about your body and the fitness and everything else. And I learned a ton. So I came out in 2005, took a little break, and then I started working in primary schools and senior schools in 2006 as a sports coach. Um, it was part of the school sports sponsorship program at the time. It was massive in the country. Um, and then I became a sports coach, then I became a, an SSCO, a school sports coordinator. And then I got the an opportunity to do some disability sports coaching. Yeah. Um, no, I, and I became the lead coach on the Whittle for disability sports. So I'd go and visit the, the, the mainstream schools for disability, the, the units within the schools. I'd go and work with teachers in classes who have two or three disabled children in the class. And uh, I did that for oh, 16 years. Um, I then started working also part-time myself in schools, taking primary school PE lessons. But for the last five, six years, I've been solely, solely involved in special, special needs work. So working with children with autism and Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, some with fine and gross motor skills. So I've worked on their movement, their coordination, their balance, their agilities. And we've introduced sport into their life. So we've done things like golf, we've done football, we've done tennis, we've done cricket, we've done rugby. We've done basketball. So I challenge the children to show me what they can do, not what they can't do. The problem yes. with people with disabilities is there's too many, oh, they can't, oh, they can't. Well, they can, but you don't know what they can do until you challenge them. We're all, we're all like that. We, we don't challenge ourselves enough when it comes to things at times. And there's a word, the word is called disability, but what's in that word? The word is ability in there. And we don't see what the abilities these children have. So I had the last 16 years working in this one school, which has been absolutely fantastic. Um, I've really enjoyed it, but this year was my last my last year, so I actually finished coaching in March, just before the, the lockdown. Um, so I went back to the school in July to say goodbye to the kids, and it was quite tearful to be honest. Of course, there were some good kids there, some good people there, but due to my special needs coaching work, um, I met a lot of men and me about nine, ten years ago at a, a do for Sir Tom Finney up in Preston. And at the time, he was the chairman of the Great Britain Special Olympics, which is the Olympics for adults and athletes with learning difficulties. Um, and since that meeting, I've now started doing a lot of work with the Northwest Special Olympics as their ambassador, promoting, wow. the, promoting people, telling people about what it is. I do a bit of work for the national uh, for head office down in London. But most of the work up here is done with uh, people with learning difficulties, difficulties and that up in the Northwest. So my, my coaching side of school is now finished. Yeah. But my work with the Special Olympics people will continue because I really enjoy that side. But in the last two or three years, my wife, I have diverged into property development oh, and investment. I, I, so say, I follow you on Instagram, Derry. Can I see all the projects that you're doing? And it looks yeah. like you're getting your hands dirty and, uh, yeah, you're making... Yeah, yeah I've, I've had a few mucky, uh, mucky experiences in some of the houses we purchased, yes. Um, <laughs> it's amazing what people do in their house and what they leave, leave behind for you. <laughs> but no, we, we, we made a decision that I'm approaching... Well, I'm 58 in a couple of months' time. My wife's only 45, 46. She wanted to be playing golf with me instead of me being retired and they're still working for the next 10 years, 12 years. So we put a plan together about three or four years ago and we've gradually invested in it. And one of our big projects, again, is, is social housing, so assisted living okay. accommodation. So people that need need accommodation, but parents don't want them in the homes. They, they, want, they want a bit more independence. So... We've got one project on the go at the moment and we're looking, we've found another building we were hoping to, to get hold of where we convert it into individual, they're not, they're not flat, the rooms that are big enough to have an ensuite and a kitchen in. And they have a, a 12 hour, 13 hour, 14 hour, someone on site looking after them during the daytime where, where they teach them to cook and look after themselves. So we, we do a lot of this social so, so, so social housing, so assisted living accommodation, which means a lot to me because yes. I, I know how much it helps these people and how much they, they, they develop and thrive with, with a bit of support and independence. So uh, I'm big on that. So that's, that's what I'm doing now, a lot more property investments. I have got very dirty at times. I've got very mucky. <laughs> I, I, and I do quite enjoy it. To be, I do quite enjoy getting involved in it because I've got a good friend of mine who is our, our lead builder. Yeah. Um, and, and and we work quite well together. Um, we did one house during during lockdown when we could go to work. We had one in Durham, and we worked room by room. I did one room. We did one. I followed and tied up. So it worked pretty well. But I do enjoy the the, 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 the the building side of things. But I'm not a builder. I would never have to put things together properly. But I don't mind mucking and helping out. Uh, Brilliant. It's been interesting two or three years doing that, and 
the moment we're, we're, we're quite enjoying it. We're, we're having a bit of a break from it because we have worked hard over the last two and a half years and, and get 11 properties out. What, so we're just going to have a little break for a while. What's quite interesting, Derek, is, you know, j- just to close the interview, is the fact that what's quite refreshing is you, you had such a great football career, you played a lot of games, you won a lot of trophies, but it's, it, you know, I know some players struggle after the game, you know, and, and to find something or they miss the game. It sounds like you fell into something and you, you I, I might be wrong, but it sounds like you don't, you don't really miss being involved in football anymore. You're spot on, Jason, I don't. Um, the thing is, all we know as footballers from the age of, nowadays from Samsung from the age of six right the way through academies into football all they know is football all they know is football they don't know anything else but football and I made a point in 2001 to try and change and, and redevelop my life so I, I, I looked at a career change I was going to I looked at all sorts but the, the PFA and the degree, the degree course helped me enormously understand my body and other people's bodies but I just think I fell into into school work but you've got to go and re-educate yourself. It's okay being a footballer, but what do you want to be afterwards? Now, some players nowadays won't want it afterwards because they've got enough money. Yeah. But some of the youngsters need to have a look at what they want to do later on in their life if they don't make it. And I was talking to someone yesterday, no, Thursday, who works at Everton. Uh, he, he looks at getting the young kids into the club. And he, I'm saying the problem is that the PFA should be putting some of these young children, young kids at 17, 18, 19, through either degree courses. And the ones that don't make it, why aren't we, why aren't we giving, right, well, PFA, FA, FA, we're, we're going to give you 20 grand a year and you're going to start refereeing games now. So by the time they get to 25, 26, we've got a group of players who've come through football from a young age, never, we're never quite good enough, yeah. but are very good referees. Because our referees are sometimes so far removed from the game, they don't understand it. And I just think we need, the PFA and the football clubs need to do more. I say the same, even agents need to do more with their players to, to ensure that they have enough knowledge of things for when, if they don't make it. Some of these players could play this afternoon and break the leg and never play again. Now, what were they doing then all of a sudden? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I made the decision to, when I finished football at the age of 40, 38, 39, 40, to re-educate myself and try f- and find another avenue. And for the last 20 years, I've had a, I've had a wonderful time doing different things, but the last 16 years um, doing the sports coat has been an absolute joy. I've loved every minute of it. Um, and I just think people are frightened to try something different because they don't know what they want to do. I, didn't know, I honestly didn't know, when I finished football, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had no idea. Yeah. I spoke to PFA. They said, do a training course and we'll fund you. No, no, I don't know what. No, just go and do a training course. No, you don't understand. I need some advice and some help. Where do I go? What do I do? What have I got in the background? What have I done previously? And I think we need to have a look at ourselves and, and, and start working with these, children, these, these footballers between the age of 18 and 23, 24 to try and find out if you don't do it, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Some people might go and buy 200 properties and be a property manager or investor, but some players won't, and and they'll lose and they'll lose track and they'll fall into things like alcohol and depression and drugs. And you've got to be careful that we don't lose people. Some, some of these footballers will be really, really good working with children, really good doing this or really good doing the other. Some might have a good education, could go straight into market. You don't know. But I think the PFA and, and the, the clubs and the, and the agents and even the players to agree need to have a good hard look at what do you want to do if you do have to finish early? Where are you going to go? What are you going to be? What do you want to be? So I have no idea of the age of 38, but luckily for me, I found, I found a different avenue. Well, I also got divorced in, in 70, uh, 2004, 2005 as well. And I've been with a new, a new lady since and, and that's been a different, different world for me. I'm a bit more positive, a bit more determined to make a, a, a life out of myself now wow. but I went through a, a tough spell when I first finished I must be I went through a tough spell when I finished as a lot of footballers do yeah, they go yeah, through yeah. a tough spell um, but it's how you come out of it the other end and, and what you see and that's what I think the PFA the clubs the FA need to do a, a football league need to, to do a lot more with a lot of the kid, the people in the game now because a lot of players haven't a clue what they're going to do because all they've known from the age of Six is the academy of football. They become an apprentice footballer, Whitechester at sixteen. 
they sign pro at 18, they play football till the you know, 28, 29, 30, and then all of a sudden it's finished. Yeah. And you see a lot of players go through big downers, alcohol, drugs, you know, self-harm. And I've seen players who, who go through really tough times. That's yeah. because there's no support for them. If, as I said, when I, when I left when I left Wolves in '94, it was like you've gone. You know, I had no nothing to do. I had no football club. I had no income. And all of a sudden, you go from getting a good wage to having nothing. All of a sudden, and wow. lucky for me, I got another four or five. Well, I another five years out of the game before I started to have a look at. And when I went into sales and marketing, the foot, the, the the pay was nowhere near what I'd been getting prior to that. So all the overheads you have. You've got to start readjusting and thinking yeah. about, you know, and, and I don't think there's enough support for players like that because when your contract finishes, you literally, boom, that's it. You go from getting, was it, 20 grand a week? It's not to the next week. And if you haven't invested that money Listen, properly and done the I, right things behind you, I, it's, it, it, it's very hard for you. I hope you wasn't on 20 grand, 20 grand a week at Wolves in the 90s. <laughs> oh, 25, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Derek, Derek, it, it's been thrilling talking to you. Um, I mean, in as much as, you know, 91 appearances for the Wolves. Um, you know, thank you for wearing the shirt. Thank you for representing our club. You know, from a, from a supporter's point of view, I'm gutted that we didn't make promotion. Um, but it, it, it's, it sounds like you're getting on with your life now. You're enjoying retirement. You're enjoying the golf. Um, good luck with finding your moustache. And Derek, it's been an absolute pleasure interviewing you today. Jason, I loved every minute of my time down there. I wish it was longer, as I said before. I wish it had been longer, but uh, I had a great time in for 20-odd years playing football. And as I said before, every club I played for has a part of me in there, in my, part of them in my heart. I always look out for the results, and I'm delighted in the Premier League, and long may continue. Wow. Thanks, Derek. Cheers, Jason. Cheers.